You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open God's holy word together. We turn first in the Old Testament to the prophecies of Zechariah, and we'll read chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me, that is the prophet Zechariah, returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now we turn to the book of Revelation. We'll start reading at Revelation 9, verse 13, and we'll carry on to chapter 11, verse 2. Here we're in the section of the book of Revelation that deals with the three woes. And in Revelation 9, verse 13, we come to the second woe. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, 
idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go. Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. This morning, in the preaching of the word, we'll pay particular attention to Revelation 11, the verses 3 through 14. There the Apostle John receives these words, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. 
The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation is not a book for the faint hearted. It's filled with visions of death and destruction. The lamb opens the seven seals. And as each one opens, God's plan for the future takes shape before John's eyes. He sees the four horsemen representing warfare, violence, famine, and plague. He sees the souls under the altar begging for justice. He sees the sky roll back and people flee in terror, pleading with the mountains and the rocks to bury them alive to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And then John sees seven angels with trumpets. And when the first four blow, a third of the trees burn up, a third of the sea turns to blood, a third of the drinking water becomes bitter, and a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars become dark. And the last three trumpets will be worse yet. Each of those last three is called a woe. This morning we read about the second woe. Four angels bound at the Euphrates River are set free and they let in 200 million horses with riders to match, breathing out fire and smoke and sulfur with their mouths. And they have tails that are shaped like snakes to bite anyone who survived. And John saw this all. The Lord showed it to him in a vision. Imagine if the Lord showed it to us here on a big screen. What kind of rating would it get? Surely chapter 9 alone would make it a restricted movie, probably a horror movie. So why were those angels bound at the Euphrates? Well, the Euphrates River was the northeastern boundary of the promised land. And during the best of times, David and Solomon expanded the boundaries of the promised land all the way to the Euphrates River. That was the limit. During the worst of times, huge enemy troops would cross over the Euphrates and overrun the land of Israel. For example, in Jeremiah 46, we read that during the reign of King Josiah, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt marched up towards the Euphrates. Now, Josiah tried to stop him. But Necho killed Josiah, and he kept right on going towards the Euphrates to fight against Babylon. But there the Babylonians defeated Pharaoh Necho, and then a huge wave of Babylonians swept down over the land of Israel and Judah. 
They even broke down the walls of Jerusalem and they burned the temple to the ground. By the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, the land of Israel had been trampled again, this time by the Romans. The city of Jerusalem had been burned down again, and Roman Gentiles had tromped through the temple courts. The city where God had chosen to put his name had become a disgrace. In Revelation 11, we read that John was given a reed and he was told to measure the temple of God. That instruction to John is actually a repeat of what we read in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel received that instruction as well. He was taken in a vision to a very high mountain where he saw the city of Jerusalem and the temple complex. And an angel stood there with a golden reed six cubits long to measure the temple. And Ezekiel had to write the measurements down. And then in the book of Ezekiel comes chapter after chapter of dimensions and measurements. But here in Revelation, John receives the instruction to measure. But nothing follows. There's nothing, no measurement. Now, remember that John had often been to the temple in Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus Christ during the Lord's earthly ministry. It was a huge temple complex. It had taken 46 years to complete. And Jesus had said that it would be completely destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And the apostle John lived to see those words come true. The temple was trampled by the Gentiles and there was hardly anything left of it. How the Jews must have despaired. The temple had been the one great thing that they had left. But now they had nothing. No land, no temple, no priesthood, no identity. And for that matter, what did the New Testament church have left? Don't forget the church of Christ also had the Old Testament as their Bible. They took comfort from God's mighty deeds for his people Israel. So what has come of all those deeds? What does the church have left? Only the word. The church has no political clout. It has no power except the power of the prophetic word. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's what our text is about this morning. God's people have to go out into a world that tramples them underfoot. For the Gentiles that have trampled the temple have to hear the gospel that warns them to repent and believe because judgment day is coming. And so we'll listen to the word of God and I summarize it this morning as follows. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to witness in a hostile world. And we'll see, first of all, the power to survive to the end and secondly, the power to revive at the end. In Revelation chapter 10, which we read together, John sees a mighty angel robed in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and a face that shone like the sun. When you look at that description, then you realize that this angel resembles the Lord himself. And that's because he's going before the Lord to announce that judgment day is coming. Once the seventh angel would blow his trumpet, we read the mystery of God would be finished. 
Now in his hand, this mighty angel has an open book. And John is told to take the book from the angel's hand, a little scroll. John gets to have access to God's plan for the end of time. It reminds me of what the Lord Jesus had said to his disciples in John 15. He said, he said to them before he ascended, no longer do I call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends because all things that I have heard from the father, I have made known to you. So John here is a friend of the king who is allowed to look into the king's plans for the future. But when the angel gives him the, the, the little scroll, rather than opening the scroll and reading it, he tells John to eat it. It's also not the first time that this has happened in the Bible. That happened to the prophet Ezekiel as well. In Ezekiel 3, he had to eat a scroll and then he had to go and prophesy. And so too, John is told that he will prophesy about many peoples, nations, and tongues and kings. Now, when John is given this instruction, he's, of course, in exile on the island of Patmos. So he could not very well go out and prophesy to the nations in person. What he had to do instead was to write the prophecy down. And that's why the book of Revelation is called a prophecy. Revelation 1, blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy. And again, in the last chapter, Revelation 22, blessed or rather, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. So John is writing a prophecy down for the seven churches. It's the last prophecy that the church will ever receive because John is the last apostle. And when he's finished writing, then the Bible will be complete. After him, there will be no more revelation, no new prophecies anymore. The church has to work with this one. And that will not be easy. The church had no position, no credibility in the world. Christians at the time were perceived as a Jewish sect. They followed a leader who had been crucified by Rome. They originated in a city that had been trampled by Rome. They had no land, no power, no clout. Who would want to become a Christian? John learns that this is not going to change. Verse 2, the Gentiles will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, what is that exactly, that period of 42 months? Well, let's break it down for a moment. If a month is 30 days, standard length, then 42 months is 1,260 days, the number that's mentioned in verse 3. 1,260 days, that's 12 months plus 24 months plus 6 months. A year plus 2 years plus half a year. A time, times, and half a time. You see, those kinds of expressions all occur all over and over in the book of Revelation. And there are different ways of expressing the same period of time. In chapter 11, verse 2, it's the time that the Gentiles will trample the outer court of the temple. In Revelation 12, 
It's the time that the woman has to stay in the wilderness. In Revelation 13, it's the time that the beast was allowed to blaspheme against God's name and against his tabernacle. During all that time, God's people would be dispossessed. They would be deprived of their rightful inheritance, weak in this world. This time characterizes the whole period from the time of the apostles till just before Christ returns. It's a time of hardship. But it's also a time of prophecy. Notice verse 3 of our text. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. My two witnesses, it says. Who are these witnesses? Quite frankly, brothers and sisters, our entire text must have struck you as rather bizarre. There are two witnesses. They're compared to two olive trees and also two lampstands. And they can shoot fire out of their mouths to kill their enemies. They can shut the sky to prevent rain. They can turn water into blood. And when they're finished prophesying, a beast comes out of the abyss and kills them. And everyone celebrates over their dead bodies until they rise from the dead three and a half days later and they ascend into heaven in full view of all their enemies. What in the world is it all about? The first thing to notice is that our text is not a vision. It doesn't say that John saw two witnesses. No, he's told about them. The result of eating that little scroll is that John receives a prophetic word and that word comes in prophetic language. It borrows from the Old Testament prophets. Okay, so there are two witnesses, which means that their prophecy is trustworthy. According to the Old Testament, you could trust the word of two witnesses. One confirms the other. And that principle continues in the New Testament. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you and you cannot resolve it, then take someone else with you so that every matter may be established by two witnesses. Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. And that principle continues. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two so that each could confirm the words of the other. When the office bearers visit in your homes, they come in pairs, two of them. So two witnesses, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. Jesus said that in Matthew 18 in the context of his word about sin. Every matter has to be established with two witnesses. The idea that we get is that two witnesses is the smallest possible picture of the church. Secondly, notice that it says that these two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before God. Here, our text alludes to that Old Testament passage that we read, Zechariah 4. There, the prophet Zechariah saw a gold lampstand with a bowl on top. And the bowl was filled with oil that ran from two olive trees. The oil flowed through channels to the seven lights to keep them burning. And this flowing oil 
from the trees that kept the lampstand burning that was symbolic of a constant anointing with the Holy Spirit. The church does not need power or land or wealth to make a difference in the world. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And then notice verses 5 and 6 of our text. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Who does that remind you of? Elijah, right? When the king sent a commander with 50 troops to, uh, to arrest him, Elijah said, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And it happened twice. And then it says in verse 6 that the witnesses have the power to shut up the sky so that it does not rain. Again, that was Elijah in the days of Ahab. He prayed that it would not rain and it didn't until he prayed again. And then the second part of verse 6 says that the witnesses have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And that, of course, reminds you of Moses. Moses in Egypt, turning the waters of the Nile into blood, striking the land with all kinds of plagues. Moses and Elijah were the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, not because they were such mighty men in and of themselves, but because the Spirit did great things through them. And that same Spirit rests on the church. Two witnesses who prophesy. I said that that's the smallest possible picture of the church. A picture of the church fulfilling its task of witnessing. But is the church small? In the eyes of the world, perhaps, yes. But in another sense, no, not at all. Two witnesses means that its testimony is true and the church goes into the world with the spirit of prophecy that once rested on Moses and Elijah and later rested on Christ and finally was poured out on the church in fullness. What kind of message do these witnesses have to bring? Well, they wear sackcloth, which means that their message causes grief. They have the power to issue fire and plagues, which means that they bring a message of judgment and doom to the world. Verse 10 even says that these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So how then will their message be received? What kind of reaction will these two witnesses get? Well, we get an indication already from chapter 9 that it will not be a positive reaction of repentance. In chapter 9, even when the 200 million horsemen bring fire and smoke and sulfur so that one-third of mankind was killed, what did the rest of the people, the survivors, do? They didn't take any notice. They did not repent. They simply carried on with their demon worship and their sexual immorality, their murders, their magic arts. People have become so wrapped up in their own pleasures, so self-absorbed with such aversion to the gospel that they do not take warnings anymore from what happens to others. 
And it's no different in our passage as well in Revelation 11. Verse 8 mentions Sodom. Remember, Sodom was the place where God could not even find ten righteous people anymore. And it mentions Egypt next, where Pharaoh so hardened his heart that the words of Moses and all the plagues and all the suffering and death that came with it simply did not penetrate anymore. And so it is with the church and the witness that the church brings. Even though the church comes with all the power of the Holy Spirit, people resist his work. They are so caught up with daily pleasures that they have simply no interest in eternal salvation. Away with those doomsayers. Eat, drink, and be merry. And yet the world will not so easily get rid of the church. For all the 1260 days of the 42 months, the full period of time, the church will continue to witness to the world. The gospel will continue to go out with the message to repent and believe. It's a remarkable fact, brothers and sisters, that the Old Testament prophets usually survived and they finished their ministry. God did not allow their ministry to be cut short. Moses was often threatened with death, but he lived 120 years and he did not die until his task was done and the Lord buried him. Elijah had to run from Jezebel. He feared for his life, and yet he finished his ministry. And then the Lord himself took him to heaven. Jeremiah was often threatened with death. He was called a liar. He was thrown into a mud pit. He nearly died of starvation in a dungeon. But he lived to see his prophecies come true. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of all the hostility and the threats, did not die before his time, not until he had fully declared the secret counsel and will of God. Only then did he become silent and go like a lamb to the slaughter. In our text, the church is pictured as two witnesses speaking out against an innumerable host of nations and kings and tongues. The church looks far too small to survive. But the church comes with prophetic testimony, which is more powerful than the commands of earthly kings. And you can find that back in the Old Testament examples, too. Think of Moses. He told Pharaoh that waters would turn to blood, and they did. Pharaoh might have ranted and raved, but he could not stop Moses' mouth. Elijah told Ahab that it would not rain, and it didn't. The word was unstoppable in the face of opposition. And so it was also with the testimony of the apostles in the New Testament. The Jewish leaders could whip the apostles, but they could not prevent them from speaking in the name of the Lord. The Roman leaders could put the apostle Paul in chains, but he said, the word is not chained. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to stop the children from saying, Hosanna, but Jesus said, if these children would stop, the very stones would cry out. He quoted from Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise to silence the foe. And so, too, we may testify of Christ. 
We do not have to fear that the church will be silenced because we don't speak in our own strength. But we testify of Jesus Christ in the power of his spirit. The gospel will continue to go out until the last of God's chosen ones have been called to salvation. Notice the opening words of verse 7. Only when they have finished their testimony are the witnesses killed. And that brings us to our second point. The events of our text are called the second woe. And that's understandable when you read what will happen after the 1260 days are complete. It says that the beast will ascend out of the abyss and he will attack the two witnesses, overpower them and kill them. This parallels what we read later in the book in Revelation 20. There will come a time when Satan will be released from the abyss and will be given free reign. He will be permitted to gather all his forces against the church. Think also of what Jesus said when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said to those who arrested him, this is your hour. It is the power of darkness. And then he became silent. His prophetic work was finished. And all the powers of hell were unleashed against him on the cross. Now, after he died, Jesus still received a burial. But of these witnesses, we read that their dead bodies will lie in the street, exposed to public disgrace. People will gloat over them and celebrate and give gifts to each other. What does it mean? Well, it seems from our passage that the two witnesses represent the prophetic witness of the church in the world. There will come a time when the prophetic ministry of the church will be stopped. No preaching anymore. No spread of the gospel any further. No public worship possible. The church can no longer gather for worship. Mission and evangelism cannot happen. The church falls silent. The prophetic voice of the church no longer speaks. It will be as though the spirit has withdrawn. The church has lost its spiritual power. Christians can no longer use the means of grace. It's as though the life has gone out of the church. It will be as though the powers of darkness have finally triumphed. And the world will rejoice because the doomsayers have finally been silenced. There's no one to rain on the parade anymore. There's no one to prick their conscience. They can just party on. And that will be a terrible time for Christians. Powerless, defenseless, unable to speak, disregarded, trodden underfoot by the powers of darkness. Why would God permit this to happen? Well, it's because the voice of prophecy will not be needed anymore. The church's task will be finished. The gospel will have gone out to the ends of the earth. Everyone will have heard it. And the last of God's chosen ones will have come to faith. And when you think about it, brothers and sisters, it won't be the first time that the church's witness has fallen silent. Remember how Elijah was silenced and he thought he was the only prophet left. And now they were trying to kill him. He ran for his life. But he was told that 7,000 
had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And think, too, of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was silenced. His disciples were scattered in all directions, but not for long. And in our text, too, the time is much shorter than expected, only three and a half days compared to the 1260, a very short period. Again, think ahead to Revelation 20. There we read that Satan was released just long enough to launch a final offensive. But just when he's gathered the nations against the saints, the fire of God falls from heaven and it's all over. Three and a half days. The days are shortened for the sake of the elect. As Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 24, when you see all these things, you will know that your redemption is near. It's at the very doors. Soon you will see the fulfillment of the prophecy. And then in verse 11, we read that after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered the two witnesses. Three and a half days, that's just the length of time when you would expect following three and a half days that corpses would begin to decay. By then, it would have been confirmed in all those who rejoice the church ain't coming back. But just when people thought that the church was silenced for good, the church rises up again. The ascended Lord has intervened to deliver his people. And notice that the witnesses are pictured as ascending in the same way Christ did. To show that they really are witnesses of Christ. Everyone will see that their prophetic words were the words of Christ. It was all true. Judgment day really was coming. They should have listened. But it's too late. The city which they trampled underfoot begins to fall down on top of them. Brothers and sisters, our text teaches that in the last days, the two sides will become more and more defined. On one side, the world will more and more hate the gospel and resist the work of the Holy Spirit. On the other side, the church, though suffering, though appearing as though small and without power, will continue to witness of Christ, warning that he is coming in judgment. There's no in-between. There's no room for compromise. Speak the words of Christ. Be prophets in this world. Not in your own strength, but in the spirit of Christ. Warn your neighbors that this world will not last. Maybe they will wish that you would be quiet and stop bothering them with your doom and gloom. But do it while you can, while the Spirit still works, because He will not let your words fall to the ground. And one day He will vindicate you in the sight of all. He will show that your words were the words of Christ, the King of Kings. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.